The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's Friday morning, July 9, about 8.30 a.m. Washington time, and time for this week's Roundtable, where we look back at the big news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. With both the House and the Senate out of town this week, things slowed down a little bit, but there's still lots shaking. President Biden announced the end of American operations in Afghanistan on August 31 while dismissing the likelihood of a Taliban takeover. Meanwhile, that other guy sued Facebook, Twitter, and Google for blocking him from their platforms. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy still not announced who, if any Republicans, will join the select committee to investigate the insurrection of January 6th. And despite making a lot of noise, progressive Democrats lost the New York City mayor's race to moderate Democrat Eric Adams. What's going on? Let's find out. Today's panel, Ginger Gibson joining us, Deputy Washington Editor from NBC News Digital. Hi, Ginger. Hi, Bill. Sudeep Reddy, Managing Editor of Politico. Welcome back, Sudeep. Hi, Bill. And a big welcome back also to David Jackson, National Political Correspondent for USA Today, who joins us today from Dallas, Texas. Hello, David. Hello, Bill. How are you? I'm good. So, uh, David, uh, I just want to start with you with the reflection that uh, saying this is a slow news week in Washington, D.C., that never happened during the last four years, did it? No, not at all. <laughs> well, I've heard the phrase a couple of times this year because after all the tumult and chaos of the Trump years, every most everything seems kind of dull during the Biden administration. But there are a lot of interesting things going on, as you mentioned. <clears throat> Right. It is it's just funny. I remember when things slowed down, we always expected them to slow down. And then Donald Trump <laughs> would, <Right>. always, <laughs> would, always, would always keep them going. So focusing first on the White House, um, the president yesterday making a very blunt, very bold statement about Afghanistan, uh, recognizing that he's going to get a lot of criticism. He still said, damn it, it's time to call it quits. Here is the president. I will not send another generation of Americans to war in Afghanistan with no reasonable expectation of achieving a different outcome. So let me ask those who want us to stay. How many more, how many thousands more Americans, daughters and sons are you willing to risk? How long would you have them stay? So, Ginger, most of the American people agree with that decision, but the president is still getting some flack saying chaos is going to follow. Is he making the right decision? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to go back to Jackson's point. I mean, 
the president discussed with, you know, escalating the the way in which we're withdrawing from Afghanistan. And, and we think that's a slow news week. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's really just a different regime we're living on. And, and someone put it really well to me the other day. Um, Biden firmly, you know, he concluded his remarks on COVID um, this week by saying, or, or maybe it was, he concluded one of his remarks this week by saying, I know that speech was boring. It was an economic <laughs> speech. I know that speech is boring. Um, and someone said to me, well, at least he understands the mandate the voters gave him. They wanted boring. Um, but you're right. This really consequential thing, which is talking about how we're going to leave Afghanistan after all of these years. And I think that there is some criticism that he's going too fast. And look, I mean, we're going to hear Republicans criticizing this decision no matter what he does or how it goes. It could go very badly. It could go very well. They're going to criticize him. Trump is going to be criticizing him, saying, you know, the guy who very much wanted to get everyone out of Afghanistan um, is going to say that Biden did it wrong. Um, and there's a lot of political sort of you know, high wire act to, to work here. I think the American voters do very much want the U.S. to not be involved in, in Afghanistan anymore. Um, I think they've made that very clear. I think we've seen that in a bipartisan way. But I also think that if things really fall apart and things get really bad, um, that's going to be seen as a problem. And, and we saw the rise of ISIS and how that was used against Obama, particularly mm -hmm. in the 2014 midterms as a, as a example of what we could see again. Right. So, Sudeep, um, the president also yesterday said when asked, he does not fear a Taliban takeover. He thinks that is not, it is not inevitable. Uh, evidence looks to the contrary, Sadiq. Right. And he, and he says, do, do I trust the, the, the Taliban? No. Um, all, all evidence from uh, the, the last few decades suggests that this, this is not going to end uh, well in the long, in the, at least in the medium term, but in the, in the long run, Biden will be gone. And he knows that. And it's the same thing, uh, that President Trump knew as well that um, there, there's no there's no winning in the long run by keeping troops um, in Afghanistan, and this is this is just a, a recognition that our our time has hit its limit there. And I think Biden recognizes that most Americans are not going to be personally invested in uh, in continuing this even longer, and so he was able to to do this relatively quietly and move on. I thought the uh, the most striking part of the president's remarks is when he mentioned that there are people serving in Afghanistan today whose parents served in Afghanistan. And he was really raising the question, now do we want the grandchildren to keep this thing going long enough that the grandchildren will serve there too? Clearly, I think most Americans say the answer is no, whatever the consequences. Uh, also then at the White House, the president went from Afghanistan uh, to a very important meeting yesterday afternoon with civil rights leaders uh, who are basically telling him he's not doing enough on voting rights. Uh, so David Jackson, Republicans shot down the For the People Act, killed it in the United States Senate, and civil rights leaders are blaming Joe Biden for not doing enough? Yes, it's almost it's almost like Mitch McConnell drew it up, that you're correct. I'm not quite sure I understand what those folks were doing at the White House. They needed to be up on at the Senate talking to Joe Manchin and perhaps Kristen Sinema as well, because it's those two Democratic senators who were 
blocking the uh, removal of the filibuster, and that's what's preventing the Voting Rights Act from passing. So I'm not really sure what uh, Biden can do about it at this point, except to continue to keep the heat on and, I guess, meet with people and talk to the media. But it's it's uh, voting rights is, at the federal level is going to face a very big slog for uh, the rest of Biden's term, I suspect. Right. Uh, and Ginger, yesterday, the vice president, uh, Kamala Harris at Howard University, announced uh, that the Democratic National Committee or the administration, I guess, is putting $25 million into uh, voter registration efforts, uh, attempts to counter Republican state legislatures, which are passing voter suppression measures around the country. Um, is, that, is that an answer, you know, to the lack of congressional action? I mean, I think they hope it's considered an answer by people who are unhappy. But let's keep in mind that political parties spend money on registering people to vote every cycle. So this isn't exactly like some novel new thing that they're doing. Not this much, I think. uh, I mean, this is a... uh, They spend a lot of money registering people to vote. This is, you know, there's a tech component that they're going to be targeting people that they think might be the most um, at risk of being affected by the law. So that's one element that's new. Um, But we have to keep in mind that, like, Elections are still sort of the bread and butter of the same thing. Spend the first year, register as many people as you can, then spend the last six months convincing as many of them to show up on election day. Um, And and that hasn't changed. Look, I I think that there's definitely um, some unease among progressives, among the most liberal wings, that Biden isn't doing enough. And I think that it's really sort of a um, a residual effect of the Trump era, not because Trump was able to sort of bang on the table and get things done, but because Trump told people he was banging on the table and getting things done. Um, and I think some people believed it. And I think that liberals believed the things they were telling their voters sometimes, which is that Trump was banging on the table and getting things done. And mm-hmm. so now they're sitting there going, well, why isn't our guy banging on the table and getting things done? And they're trying to find some way to convince them that that they should be happy with what he's doing. Yeah. So in terms of getting things done, Sudeep, um, we know that Mitch McConnell has said, again, number one goal is to prevent this administration from accomplishing anything. This week, uh, Congressman Chip Roy from Texas weighed in. Um, a little hard to follow this sound, but he basically is asking for, he says their goal is uh, 18 more months of total chaos. Here is Chip Roy. Honestly, right now, for the next 18 months, our job is to do everything we can to slow all of that down to get to December of 2022 and then get in get in, in here and leave. I actually say, thank you, Lord, 18 more months of chaos and the inability to get stuff done. That's what we want. So, <laughs> Sadiq, when the Republicans say our goal, 18 more months of chaos, just to not get anything done so we can get through the midterms, uh, that makes us go to harder for for Biden to get to to get anything through Congress. Yeah, this is uh, this is another this is a, a McConnell esque uh, truth bomb of people just saying the quiet <laughs> part out loud, right? That we always knew this was going to be the case. That these these are a lot of uh, of uh, Republicans generally who are still uh, litigating the the last election and will continue to do that. So. Um, and what Chip Roy was saying here, which is uh, he's he's been a little different from some of the others, but in this case, he's been very obvious that their their goal is to uh, to 
stand in the way and stop letting Biden rack up legislative wins. I think um, Biden and his crew would love nothing more than to do a snapshot in time to just freeze the moment um, with people getting back out, with the vaccinations getting underway, uh, get, getting uh, completed for half the country to just uh, savor this moment and let people vote on how they feel right now, um, which is a, a pretty positive on balance. Uh, and Republicans recognize that's not their ticket to to a, a clean sweep in 18 months. Right. Uh, so I can't leave the White House without, don't want to make too much of this, but can't leave the White House without at least a couple of comments on the stories this week about internal turmoil in the vice president's office, staffing problems, people not happy, people quitting, people complaining. Uh, David Jackson, we've heard this before. <laughs> Every presidency. <laughs> it's an arty perennial. Is this a big deal or is this, is this inside baseball? I, I, I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's a classic case of the, you know, the vice president's office. They, presidential people, some Biden people have come over and they've worked for Kamala Harris and they're not getting along necessarily with the standbys from the Harris team. So there's, a, there's always this kind of friction that happens in a White House. Uh, same deal with Pence and and his people fought with some of Trump's people and this, you know, Dan Quayle, uh, you know, Al, even Al Gore and uh, Dick Cheney, well, certainly Cheney and Bush. I mean, it's, that's just, it's just part of the system where you have the staffs of the president and the vice president kind of fighting each other. And so consequently you get these in, in, palace intrigue stories about turmoil within the Harris organization. So I, I will say that the same kind of stories followed Harris when she was a senator and even when she was in California as attorney general. So mm -hmm. for whatever reason, she's, you know, she's criticized fairly or unfairly as, as not a great manager. So that's the, the, the one unique part of this particular story. But the fact of the matter is that Biden and Harris get along, and that's the only relationship that really counts in the White House. Right. Uh, Ginger, it seems to me that uh, I wonder, you know, the Republicans have tried to demonize Joe Biden uh, unsuccessfully, right? Because as you started out, uh, he doesn't give them much ammunition. Uh, so I think they find Kamala Harris may be an easier target. I think they absolutely find Kamala Harris an easier target. And I think they find Harris a target um, not just for the, the present, but for the future. They think that she's got the easiest route to being the next Democratic nominee. Um, and they have proven time and time again to find that their long-term planning on criticizing their opponents uh, has paid off for them. Uh, I, I think first of Hillary Clinton and how they anticipated her being the nominee. Um, and I think that that's what we're seeing some of their focus on. Um, they want to elevate her. They want to make her responsible for everything that happens in this administration, uh, particularly the things they think they can criticize Democrats for. Um, and sometimes she gives them some things to do. I mean, um, my my colleague Shannon Pettypiece did a piece in December about her hiring um, and about her choosing staff and about her keeping staff. I mean, this has been a perennial issue for her um, and they're going to keep pressing on it and she's going to have to figure out um, what to do about it because I, I think that um, for the lack of being a complete inside the beltway cliche, it starts to build a narrative, right? And it starts to be that Harris can't manage a staff, and, and that's not a narrative she wants about her. Right. All right, breaking news here. Sudeep Politico reports this morning that uh, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has decided that, in fact, he will appoint um, 
five Republicans to serve on the select committee to investigate the January 6th insurrection. Hey, Sadiq, I mean, big deal. He had no choice, really, did he? He had no choice. He's looking. At, he's going to have to find some some fighters to uh, to avoid getting Benghazi'd here, um, because this is what what uh, this is essentially the playbook he created, and that's why he's been so uh, so tentative on this all along. Is how is he going to push back at this, um, Kevin? Let, McCarthy, let, me, let me interrupt you for just a sec because I think it's important. You made an important point that people understand. There was the move to have a bipartisan commission, right, which he shot down. And therefore, now he's stuck with this select committee that the speaker has created. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and what he and other Republicans are hoping for is to move on from uh, what happened in January six months ago to, and to move on from uh, everything that that Trump did to, to stoke all of it. And that is what Democrats want to keep talking about. Do you want a return to that moment? You can you can already see the 2024 ads playing out um, on like, do, do, is this what you want again? They, they'll, they'll play those uh, images of people storming the Capitol. Is that what you want? And uh, those images are going to play even more now. And there's really no way uh, to to explain it away. There's there's the, the, the factual evidence here is just so vast that. Um, uh, McCarthy's uh, people are going to have a, a hugely dif- difficult time getting through all of this. Uh, so, David, what does he do? Does McCarthy appoint people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or Jim Jordan, you know, the real rabble rousers? Or does he appoint some some people who might take this seriously and uh, be part of a serious bipartisan investigation? Well, good question. Maybe, maybe a, a representative from both wings. Uh, I've never really understood McCarthy's uh, strategy from the beginning, because as you mentioned, he passed up the chance for the bipartisan commission when he could have had his own agents right there from the get-go involved. Um, Part of the reason he's doing what he's doing is because Trump doesn't want it. Trump wants to somehow kill the commission, and I think McCarthy would like to kill the idea as well, although I don't think that's going to be possible. But uh, another thing I think McCarthy's interested in is just delaying the report for as long as he can, hopefully beyond the congressional elections for next year. I don't know if that's going to be possible either. So um, I would, I, 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 the only thing I'm sure about is that McCarthy's going to want somebody on there who's going to want to protect his interests, because my belief is that McCarthy's most worried about what the commission's going to learn about his own conversations with Trump on January the 6th. You know, that's never really been... That's never really been set in stone. There's a lot of rumors about what the two talked about and a lot of press reports, but uh, we haven't, you know, we really haven't heard McCarthy himself talk about it in public or nor Trump. And that's something that could be unearthed by this commission. And I think it's something McCarthy's very worried about. Yeah. The last thing he wants to see is that that subpoena. And Ginger, there are 13 members. Uh, The speaker appoints eight uh, and she has appointed seven Democrats and Liz Cheney as the eighth member. <laughs> so, you know, McCarthy's already got a Republican on the panel, right? <laughs> Who he issued this empty threat that he was going to strip her of her committee assignments, like that didn't need to go through Pelosi, who's <laughs> absolutely not going to let them strip Cheney of her committee assignments. But I, I think that um, the, I think Jackson's right here, right? They, they absolutely need, he needs someone for his interest, but also I think probably, um, I suspect we're going to see folks who have been loud 
outspoken protectors of the president. Um, you know, I could I could throw some names out there that we would all recognize, um, but he's going to want someone who can negotiate with Democrats, who can um, be taken seriously across the aisle, and who can um, be involved in these discussions. And um, Sadiq referenced Benghazi in his playbook, but I mean, think back to Trey Gowdy and his role in all those Benghazi hearings, I think people didn't understand that while he was a Fox News firebrand, he and Jerry Connolly and Elijah Cummings got along really well. He and Jerry Connolly were good friends. They socialized outside of the Capitol building, and that allowed him to sort of work across the aisle when he needed to, even in the most partisan and difficult moments. Um, and so I think that 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 is also going to be a factor. Um, Liz Cheney is not going to be that because she's not going to be um, willing to do Kevin's bidding, you know, McCarthy's bidding if he wants it. But I think that that he's going to have to find some balance, not just between strident Trump defenders, but people who can, can sort of function in negotiations somewhat. Right. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to watch if uh, McCarthy appoints John Katko from New York, who was the man who did put together the bipartisan plan for a bipartisan commission uh, at McCarthy's request to see if he ends up on the select committee as well. That would be one of my bets. I was going to mention that. I think Katko's going to go on there. Yes. I mean, the Katko declined a Pelosi appointment very publicly. Yeah. He said he didn't want Pelosi to put him on the committee. So uh, he thought that it was problematic to have it be so partisan. So he would be um, after having once said no. Yeah, I think it'd be a good point, a good move on the part of McCarthy. We'll see what happens. Uh, a lot going on on the political front as well as uh, both parties gear up for the midterm elections. Let's talk a little bit about that here uh, after we take a quick break on the Bill Press Pod with today's panel, Ginger Gibson, Sadiq Reddy, and David Jackson. And today's roundtable brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They're the great people who serve us uh, in our big uh, retail uh, outlets and our major grocery chains, our meatpacking plants, chicken processing plants, and cannabis plants as well. Cannabis plants and cannabis factories, I guess we would call it. Uh, check out their website at ufcw.org. We thank them for their good work serving us and uh, for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery. 
starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We are back here with today's roundtable. Sadiq Brady joining us from Politico, David Jackson, USA Today, and Ginger Gibson, NBC News Digital. Uh, On the Democratic front, let's start there. Eric Adams now declared the winner of the Democratic primary in New York City. He will be the next mayor of New York, a moderate Democrat uh, who cleared the field uh, despite a lot of noise, a lot of opposition from progressive Democrats. Uh, sort of a reflection of the 2020 uh, Democratic primary, where Joe Biden, moderate, cleared the field after, despite a lot of opposition and noise from progressives. Um, so where do we go here? David, start us off. Has the moderate wing of the Democratic Party taken control here? Well, I think they've really, I really think they've always had control at the national level. But on the other hand, I would point out he barely won the nomination. <laughs> and after a very complicated process involving ranked choice voting, which I think was the real story of the New York mayoral primary, I'm not sure people are real happy with the way that turned out. But he did prevail. And uh, I do think the moderates, I mean, still control. Con- I, know, I know that AOC has been elected and, you know, Bernie Sanders is still very prominent in the party. But I really, I really do think that the, the moderates are, are in control at the national level and certainly at the big levels. Um, I mean, you look at a guy like Tim Ryan who's going to run for the Senate in Ohio. And, of course, Biden's uh, victory in the Democratic presidential primary, I think, tells you all you need to know about the fact that uh, the left wing just hasn't just hasn't been able to take over the party. And the New York mayoral, mayoral election isn't uh, it's just the latest example. Well, Sadiq, we remember it wasn't that long ago, right after the midterms, particularly with the emergence of the squad, right, that a lot of Democrats were saying, oh, this is terrible. We're going to go too far left, you know, are going to take over. Sadiq, but it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. And I, I think uh, there are a few people to thank for it. And uh, if, if if that's been a concern, then it's the, the Joe Manchins of the world who are, are also uh, helping Biden stay closer to the center. Everyone knows that is the the ticket when you're this closely divided uh, in the, the country overall is to to not look like you're extreme, um, particularly in this moment when Republicans are looking for any hint uh, that that they can they can climb on their their socialism uh, uh, parade discussion and, and say that it's all about that. Um, but uh, this has always been the case. I think you saw it in. In uh, in the Obama years and in the middle of his of his eight years, obviously we saw it in the Clinton years. Um, there's just that 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 desire to not go go a little too overboard on this. Uh, Ginger, the phrase that I keep thinking of is defund the police, right? I mean, look, Eric Adams, he he clearly ran, and so did Joe Biden, right? As not defund but refund the police. Yeah, and if you look, two different Democratic strategy polling firms have done postmortems in conjunction with other groups in the 2020 election, and and they've 
both been very clear that they think the defund the police message hurt Democrats. It hurt Democrats in sort of the swing house races um, and some other legislative races around the country. And they think that Democrats, that Republicans were able to tie to the message, even if they themselves did not agree with it, it hurt them, that it may have hurt Biden um, around some of the margins in some places because they so um, aggressively sought to tie him to that. And and I think that, um, you know, I, I we talked earlier about boring, about Biden being boring. And I, I go back to being on the road reporting in 2019, you know, long before the, even before the primary got warmed up or even 2018 covering the midterms and just having so many people of all political stripes tell me they just wanted boring. They just wanted things that weren't exciting. And I, and I think that that's part of it. They don't want anyone to burn down the system. They don't want the police department to get um, sort of, you know, gutted and changed. They just want calm and boring. And I think that Biden was that and Eric Adams is that. And we're going to see in primaries another round of Democrats nominating a lot of boring people across the country like they did the last two congressional cycles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, switching to the Republican Party uh, and what they're up to, I must admit uh, I was <laughs> I was really faked out on Monday of this week when I saw a headline uh, in the Washington Post uh, talking about Republicans running, uh, particularly at the state level, governor, attorney general, state legislature, and focusing, it said, Republicans focus on 2020. And I, of course, thought the headline said 2022. And I thought, so what's a big deal? Of course, they're focusing on 2022. And then I realized, no, they were... The headline was right. They were focusing on 2020. One, according to the Post, one third of Republicans running for office are their whole message is the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden's the illegitimate president. Uh, David, how is that a winning strategy? Well, people feel like it's a winning strategy in a Republican primary, and I think it's also a bid by some of these candidates to get the coveted Donald Trump endorsement. So they're going, they're going all in on either, what, either the big steal or the big lie, depending on how you look at it. I, I look at it the latter way, but it is it is pretty amazing how many Republicans have embraced uh, you know Trump's false claims about the so-called rigged election, and that they're actually running for office based on it, and. They feel like that there's enough, going to be enough support among the rank and file Republicans to where that could actually be a winning message. And that, that's, you know, that's liable to be the message of Donald Trump's 2024 presidential campaign is, hey, they stole it from me last time. I deserve it this time. So it's something we're going to be hearing about for the you know, like it or not. It's something we're going to be hearing about for the next three years. Uh, and we heard about it yesterday from Steve Bannon on his podcast, who said any Republican running in 2022 uh, has to begin by saying 2020 was a stolen election. Again, Sudeep, what's your take? This is this is the, the, the big lie. And look, everyone, the reason they're doing this is because they recognize that they need uh, the Trump uh, seal of approval. And the only way to get the seal of approval is to join the Trump lie. Um, that's that's the, the core of it. Um, that's why there are uh, people running for for local offices across the country, for election offices across the country, uh, trying to litigate the 2020 election. It's the only way to get the extra lift from uh, the the state party. It's the only way to to get the the potential endorsement from Trump um, to 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 go forward here. And 
Um, this is this is what maybe people like Kevin McCarthy should be worried about. Do we want? Uh, does he want this to to be on repeat for the next four years alongside uh, images of uh, of people scaling the Capitol for a coup? Uh, Ginger, as David Jackson said. Um, this is the key to, they see, as a key to winning the Republican primary. Is it the key to winning the general election? Look, I think that what Trump realizes and he is trying to do here is he doesn't want to be a loser, right? So we have to tell everyone he didn't really lose because he's a man who cares about branding and image and being a loser uh, makes you a loser forever, as he's been telling everyone that <laughs> listens to him for the past several years. And so he needs to be a winner. And so that's why he's demanding this of people that they bolster that image of him. And I think that there's still, that works in the Republican primary. I mean, you can look at the polls, but the the middle, and of course, all of the people who didn't vote for him know he lost um, because they've contributed to it. And so they don't need um, to be told otherwise. They, they sort of feel it. It's something they participated in. And it's going to be hard to take that message that Trump didn't lose, that the election was stolen, that, uh, you know, that the Capitol uh, riot was just tourist um, to people who sort of in their being and their fiber because they participated in defeating him um, thought he lose and, and and he lost by seven million votes so there's seven million more people who think that way and so I, I think it is going to be a really hard message to sell in the general election mm-hmm. and I think we can look to examples like Virginia where there's a gubernatorial race going on and Glenn Youngkin um, sort of echoed some of not as much as some of the other reports Republican candidates, but did echo some of that Trump yep. positions and then has abandoned those positions now that he's in a general election. And I suspect he is uh, setting the pace for what we're going to see a lot in the next year and a half. Okay. So uh, the focus for the Republican Party this weekend is in Dallas, Texas, where David Jackson is on the scene uh, to report on CPAC. It starts today at noon. David, uh, just give us a little report on what, what we can expect who are the big headliners at CPAC? What's the agenda? What's going on? Well, there's not, it's, it's a little bit of a different CPAC. You know, normally they have the meeting in February, and they did have it in February this year in Orlando, but that that was a restricted one. Florida still had COVID restrictions in place, so there wasn't much of a crowd, and it, uh, it, it wasn't your traditional CPAC event. So Matt Schlapp, the organizer, wanted to have what he called a real CPAC, so he scheduled this event for Dallas here in mid-July. And there are questions as to how big a crowd he's going to be able to draw here because it's an unusual part of time. It's very, it's very hot here, too. And his speaker list does not have a lot of big names on it. I mean, Trump is going to headline it. He's speaking Sunday to close the conference. But the only other presidential wannabe that I see on the list is Christy Nome. He's got the, the usual cast of, of conservative lawmakers like Lauren Boebert, I think, is supposed to, supposed to speak, and um, Jim Banks from Indiana and, and those type of very conservative members of Congress. But other than that, there's not the speaker's list is not really a full one. So it's basically turning into a pep rally for Donald Trump. Yeah. Which uh, lately that's all CPAC has been right for. Well, I mean, a lot of conservatives I've talked to here in Texas and elsewhere are kind of upset. They've uh, 
Schlapp heads an organization called the American Conservative Union, and there are a lot of complaints about the ACO now that it's, it's basically it's turned into a Trump lapdog. So I don't think it's going to be a, a, the spectacular conservative event that CPAC's been in the past, but it will be interesting to see how Trump handles it and take the temperature of the delegates. Uh, and we count on you, David, to make it as, <laughs> as interesting as possible. <laughs> well, I'll do the best I can, but we'll see. It could be a challenge this time around. <laughs> okay, guys, that's great. Ginger Gibson, Sadiq Reddy, David Jackson, thank you so much for uh, uh, looking back at the news of the week before we let you go. However, there's always one story, as much as we cover, as much as we read and talk about, that captures our attention. We call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, Sudeep, you want to start us off? Yeah, we all uh, certainly uh, know about the, the Trump lawsuit, trying to create a spectacle yeah. uh, around getting kicked off the social media platforms. Um, and uh, it's obviously just just for show. Uh, but the, 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 the revelation that popped out at me comes from a new book um, by Shira Frankel and Cecilia King at the New York Times. Uh, and one of the anecdotes they've got in there is that on the morning of January 6th, um, the, the security team at Facebook was actually monitoring the messages from these extremists who were posting on on Facebook um, in plain sight, planning the 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 coup uh, of of their country. And the team there, the 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 executives, even uh, discussed asking Mark Zuckerberg to to call Donald Trump to ask him what he planned to say uh, that day uh, in front of the crowds. And so it, it kind of shows how close this relationship. Uh, or at least that how they perceived the relationship was between uh, Zuckerberg and, and Trump. They had met uh, a couple years earlier, and um, how much Facebook actually was monitoring what was happening uh, at that moment um, ahead of ahead of the actual event. Uh, and let me let me just ask you on that point, Sadiq. Any chance uh, does this lawsuit have any chance, any shot in the courts? What's no, of course not. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> and it's it's not designed uh, to go anywhere. It was designed to get headlines, which is what he wanted. And it's designed for 2022 and 2024. And uh, uh, and that's how it'll be used. Uh, and to raise a little money at the, at the same, exactly, same time, exactly. I guess. Right. Uh, uh, Ginger, how about you? Yeah, so I'm going to recommend um, a story that Cam Joseph, who is also a regular of the podcast, did for Vice um, this week, and not just because I'm quoted in it, but because I think it's a really important piece um, that looks at sort of the experience a lot of the reporters who were in the Capitol on January 6th had that day, but more importantly, have had since then. Um, and it, it looks at not just the mental sort of health issues that are real and um, are really affecting a lot of our colleagues and are really hard um, having gone to work thinking they were going to cover a legislative session in the morning and ended up um, in the middle of a, um, a riot, um, of which I think is important to note, they were not just observers, but also targets. Um, mm -hmm. And then how do you cover Congress after that? And how do you do it? And, and I think that one thing that has not gotten much attention, and, and Kim mentions, there's people who have stopped, uh, who have said they can't do it anymore. We've lost some um, really senior members of that press corps because of it. And it's a, it's a good read. He did a good job explaining the issues there. I thought that was a very important story, uh, the lasting impact among the journalists who were, as you point out, targeted that day, found themselves running for their lives. Um, where so deep? No, so we started with David Jackson's left. David, okay. Uh, how about it? David, your favorite story. Uh, 
Well, like you mentioned, it was a slow news week. So I'm going to go back to the uh, something that we talked about earlier on this podcast, and that is the, the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I'm just astonished at the, the lack of the relative lack of publicity that, that decision's got and this the quietude with which the American public seems to have received the news. I mean, remember 9-11, 9/11 was 20 years ago, and then a month later we had invaded Afghanistan, and uh, then it, became, it turned into America's longest war, and now we're pulling out, and it doesn't seem like a lot of people seem to care one way or another. I mean, the U.S. emptied Bagram military base in the middle of the night, and yeah. that story, but that story was only up, up on the wires for a few hours. I'm just, I'm just kind of astonished at the at the uh, silence, the, the near silence surrounding this decision that to end America's longest war. It's I also find it ironic that now we're out of Afghanistan, but we're still in Iraq, even though most people supported the Afghanistan war and, and opposed the Iraq military action. But there seems to be a lot of reversals going on, and I'm just I'm just struck by that. That was my favorite story of the week. Uh, it, it's hard, you know, not to just be stunned by the fact that we were there for 20 long 20 years. years, you know, and looking back, I guess we're all uh, Monday morning quarterbacks. But if only we had gone in there, knocked off, gotten uh, chased out, gotten Al-Qaeda out, knocked off the Taliban and then gotten out. Right. We could have done it in six months, probably max. Um, we right. saved a lot of lives and a lot of money for sure. Uh, well, my story of the week, I got to tell you, uh, I'm going to give it the kudos to Jill Biden. Uh, <laughs> that yesterday she's down in uh, Savannah, Georgia, for a little voter, I mean, a, a vaccination uh, to, to visit a vaccination site. And on her way back to the airport, she stopped at the Green Truck Neighborhood Pub to pick up a couple of pecan pies to bring back to the White House. And this uh, is a pattern now with the president and now the first lady. We know last week the president was in Michigan and he stopped in and bought a couple of cherry pies. And then he stops, always stops at his favorite, at some favorite ice cream, local ice cream shop uh, when he's out there. Uh, I just have to say, I think, <laughs> I'm sure Michelle Obama is <laughs> is not <laughs> not happy with this, right? But I love the fact that Joe and Jill Biden make no bones about it. They love ice cream, they love pie, they love dessert, and they're saying basically saying to all of us, "It's okay." <laughs> it's sweet okay. tooth of America, rejoice! <laughs> exactly, the sweet tooth of America is back, and I think if the Biden administration accomplishes nothing else, they will have accomplished that for sure. For which we salute them and we thank. Uh, today's panel, Ginger Gibson, NBC News Digital, Sadiq Reddy with Politico, David Jackson, USA Today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. We hope you're doing your best to stay cool uh, these very scorching summer days. Um, take care of yourself and then come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Uh, next Tuesday, we'll be talking with Joe Cirincione, former head of the Plowshares Fund about the ever-present danger of nuclear weapons on the planet and the fact that uh, very much uh, under the radar, the United States and Russia are still building more of them. That's on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Again, take care, be strong, be safe, and we'll see you next week again on the Bill Press Pod.